Well, John the Baptist was at his post in the middle of an out-of-the-way place in the middle of the wilderness near the Jordan River. The air was dry, the sun was hot, the conditions were harsh. It was the kind of intense environment that would be ideal for someone to be forced to have to come to grips with reality. The wilderness has a way of making us honest. John was there with two of his students, waiting intently and watching vigilantly for the one who was to be called Messiah. No other motivation was out there to compete for their attention way out there in the middle of nowhere. Their focus was clear. Their hearts were resolute. Days, weeks, months had gone by and created an eager expectation for the fulfillment of the message that John the Baptist had been proclaiming. Make straight the path of the Lord. And then one day, it happened. John looked up from where he was speaking to his students and unhesitatingly, unreservedly announced, here he is, God's Passover lamb. The students had been well-trained, well-prepared by John. They knew just what to do when that would happen. They left John following his instructions to chase after this man with all that you have. And that's exactly what they did. They ran to catch up with Jesus. And as they got close, their hearts began to race. Their pulse quickened. Their nerves started to flare up. Because what would they say to this man? How do you start a conversation with someone believed to be God? Well, before a word could get or leave their mouths, Jesus turned, looked right at them and said, what are you after? Now the answer was obviously him and typically Jesus is the right answer to almost any question, right? (laughs) But Jesus didn't ask this because he didn't know the answer. He asked this because he believed these people were chasing after something that had led them to chase after Jesus. And Jesus knew what that was, but he wanted them to consider for themselves what they were really after. Let's imagine for a moment that you were going to trade place with one of John the Baptist's students now, and Jesus was going to ask you this question. How would you respond if Jesus asked you right where you are today, what are you after? How would you respond? Well, this diagnostic question lies at the heart of our July teaching series that we're calling The Chase. It's a series designed for us to assess what is really driving our lives, what's the motivation behind what we do. And we want to see if what we're really after can actually deliver what we really want. There's almost an endless list of things that it feels like people are pursuing to try and satisfy what their hearts long for most. There are a lot of life stage goals that we are chasing after that you might be after. Maybe it's graduation or a new degree. Perhaps it's uh, getting the job of your dreams. Perhaps uh, you're looking to find a home that you can really make your own. 
Maybe you're looking to find that significant other, or maybe you are trying to have kids or grandkids, and you're really hoping your kids would finally get to that point if you're wanting to be a grandparent, or uh, you're just longing for retirement. A lot of us are chasing after life stage goals. Others of us are maybe chasing after performance goals. We want to be better at what we do. So maybe it's athletically or musically. Maybe you want to set a new personal record, or maybe uh, you're trying to find first chair and get that, or maybe if you're France or Croatia right now, now, you're hoping to get a World Cup, and I'm glad all of you are here at 11 o'clock with this game actually going on right now. You must not care about soccer. A lot of Patriots fans I've been in the house right now. Well, some of us are longing for feelings. We, we long for the feeling of comfort or happiness or pleasure or maybe the feeling of importance. Or maybe some of us are just in more desperate, hurting situations today. And we are just chasing after the bare necessities. Maybe we're looking for stability in a relationship or financial stability. We're just trying to make ends meet. Maybe we just need to get any job. Or some of us might be trying to chase marks on our bucket list to kind of check those things off. Things we hope to do before we die, like jump out of an airplane or travel to some exotic location. I was reading one man's bucket list and he had uh, some of the oddest combinations of things that he wanted to do. On one side, he wanted to throw a television through a window at least four stories high off the ground. (laughs) Then he wanted to exit a car or a building that was seconds away from blowing up and he wouldn't look back at the explosion. That was another one. And then on the other extreme, I read down his list and it said he wanted to memorize lots of scripture, at least 200 verses or so. Just pretty wild. (laughs) And if that's your bucket list, I would love to talk with you. So if you wouldn't mind, (laughs) write me an email. Let's try and talk about that a little bit more. Maybe this question, what are you after, is just causing you to scratch your head. Maybe you don't really feel like right now that you are after much of anything right now. If so, then perhaps trying to maintain life as it is, maybe be what you are unknowingly chasing after. So I'd just like you for, for one second here, in a word or a phrase, take maybe a device out or make a mental note and answer this question honestly. What? are you chasing? What are you after right now? What are you after? Well, this text from John chapter one that I recited earlier really grabbed hold of my attention back in December. And that question, what are you after, was the kind of question that just leapt off the pages of scripture and penetrated my heart, and I haven't been able to let go of this question for months. And so I started you know, praying about it, and, and I said, Lord, I know chasing after you is what I wanna be after, but I think there's something else that might be motivating me that I don't even realize I am after. This was uh, the spring of earlier this year, and it was a time of life that we really felt like we should have been happier, or at least I felt like I should have been happier than what I was. Uh, Our second son was about to arrive in April. Uh, The book I had worked so hard on was about to be released, and yet I felt unsettled. I felt dissatisfied. I felt discontent in some way, and I had no idea why. 
but I knew this question might get to the bottom of it. And so one day while I was reading another book about following Jesus, this line from some of the reflection questions really stood out to me and it answered my question finally, but in a surprising way. And here's what I read. You do not have to concern yourself with being great. Now, it kind of shocked me that that felt like the answer to my question, what are you after? Because I don't really consider myself all that great of a person. I don't really try to be, I try to do as good as I can, don't get me wrong, but I don't feel like um, after some like major chase to, to become famous or have a billion followers or anything like that on social media, no. But what I started to realize was this, this idea of being great was so ingrained into me at such an early age. It's like the air and the culture that we breathe all around us that without me even consciously knowing it, I was striving to be great. I didn't just want to follow Jesus. I wanted to be noticed for how I followed Jesus. Now, striving to do good things or great things isn't bad in and of itself, but when you're striving to do great things so that other people take notice of it, that really can be a major problem. And so this great diagnosis that I kind of made for myself, I started to call what I struggled with the grip of great. The grip of great. And here's what this is. The grip of great is the hold that being great at whatever you value to be most important can have over you. Whatever it is that you value to be most important, if you're trying to be great at that, this can grip your life in a very destructive, life-taking way. So let me try and share some symptoms of what this grip of great might be like. Because perhaps you're like me. Maybe, maybe something's kind of going off in your mind right now thinking, you know what, I actually kind of struggle with this too. It's not just Dave. Here are a few symptoms that you might have the grip of great. First is envy. You see what other people have and what you lack and you either covet what they have or you look down upon yourself because of what you are lacking Closely related to this is comparison. You're sizing yourself up against someone else to see who has the better or more accomplished life, work, and family. Sometimes you can play that comparison game. How about anger or frustration? Something or someone has prevented you from being where you think you should be to being who you think you rightly deserve to be. And you find yourself speaking out bitterly or resentfully or acting in anger as a result. Closely related to this would be impatience. You are just tired of waiting for things to change. And your impatience is starting to negatively impact your work and your closest relationships. How about pressure? Another symptom. You find yourself putting a ton of pressure on yourself to perform in a certain way, and if you don't meet your own expectations, you can really beat yourself up in a significant way. Sometimes you have so much pressure that you put on yourself that when it comes to making a decision, you can almost be paralyzed because you're so afraid of doing the wrong thing because you have such high expectations of yourself. Or lastly, maybe you lack pleasure. Perhaps there are things that used to make you feel fulfilled or bring you joy or happiness and now you might do those same things and it's like that pleasure isn't there anymore. 
You don't enjoy the simple things of life as much as you used to. There's like this running narrative going on in your head telling you what all the next strategic moves should be or all the things that you could or should be doing and it's taking you away from enjoying the gift of this very moment. So if you've experienced symptoms like these and perhaps you might struggle with this grip of great like I do and like so many of us in our world today do. But our cultural moment, it is far from the only one to get grasped by this allure of greatness. In fact, as we look to the Gospels, we'll actually meet some people clear back in Jesus' day who struggled with the grip of great. And some of these people were the people that were the closest to Jesus himself. So we're going to look at a couple passages, one in Mark 9 and then one in Matthew, to discover if there is something greater that we should be pursuing than being great. And if there is, then perhaps that is what's going to help us break this grip of great on our lives. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter, or sorry, Mark chapter 9. We'll start in verse 33. Mark 9. And and just to paint the picture, set the scene a little bit here, Jesus has just gotten done teaching about his, uh, his death and his resurrection that is to come. And let's see what the disciples do in response to this profound teaching of Jesus. Verse 33, Mark 9. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. Now, the Greek word used in this situation is the word busted. I can't tell you how many times I found myself in a very comparable situation at school. I'm just running my mouth to a friend, and uh, just to be honest with you, I'm a terrible whisperer. My voice just carries, which is probably why God made me to be a preacher, not a whisperer. And, uh, and my voice would always carry and find its way to the teacher who would then call on me, Mr. Ripper, what was that that I heard you say? And then I have to think really quickly on my feet to try and help explain what she only thought she heard me say, not what I actually said. And so the disciples find themselves in a comparable situation. But the disciples here say nothing. Probably not because they couldn't come up with an excuse, but because of how seriously wrong and ill-timed the conversation that they were having was. Jesus talks about his death and his resurrection, foretelling what is going to be the most history-shaping events in the world that we've ever seen. And directly following that, the disciples start talking about Which of them was the greatest? So Jesus calls them out, quite rightly, not only because of the inappropriateness of what they were saying, but because of the futility of their thinking. What they think it means to be great has next to nothing to do with Jesus' vision of what lasting greatness is all about. Verse 35, so Jesus sat down. That's always kind of an uh uh-oh moment when Jesus sits down to try and teach you. Jesus sits down, calls the 12, and he says this. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Now let's turn back to Matthew chapter 23 to see what Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day. Start in verse 1, Matthew 23. 
Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That's the place of teaching. These were like the leaders of the day. They're teaching from the seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. And then skip down to verse five. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. We'll explain that in a moment. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi or teacher. Now, phylacteries were these small cube-shaped boxes that were made of leather that contained words of scripture and people would bind them onto their left arms. They still do this to this day and also bind them on their uh, foreheads as a way of literally fulfilling the scripture's commands in Deuteronomy to keep God's word right before your very eyes. And then the fringes were tassels with a blue cord that were attached to a man's garments to remind them to try and do all that God said. Now, while these tools could be very helpful in reminding oneself to follow God's ways, it could also be very easy for them to be displayed in order to project how religiously devoted you were to other people. And that desire to be seen and noticed It's the grip of great. And that's what Jesus calls to attention here. Notice especially the relevance of verse five to our digital age. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Sound familiar, anyone? See, I think this temptation to be motivated to do whatever we do as a way of making ourselves seen by others It may be greater, this temptation, than any other time in human history thanks to social media. I learned recently that on on average, every single day, there are 95 million photos posted to just Instagram alone. 95 million photos. Every 60 seconds on Facebook, listen to this, 510,000 comments are posted, 293,000 statuses are updated, and 163,000 photos are uploaded. That's every 60 seconds. And on Twitter, there are more than 500 million tweets that are posted every day. Even if you're not somebody who posts a lot, the studies have shown that the average person, average, spends one hour and 40 minutes a day on social media. It's like watching a movie of random junk every single day. (laughs) Every day. Now, I think we know This is really destructive to our souls. And yet we continue to do it again and again. So I would say if seeking attention or recognition or validation is a large part of this grip of great, then I think many of us here in our world are finding ourselves being strangled. We're we're having the life choked out from within us. Let's take just a brief moment now to pause and let's kind of recap what we have said so far. We've reflected on Jesus' question, what are you after? And we've tried to help 
see what we might be after. And so what we've called here first is this great diagnosis, what I've labeled as the grip of great. That's what a lot of us, I believe, in our world suffer from. This grip of great, it's really the great obsession of our time and our day and age now. But not only, I think, is it the great obsession of our day and age, but I think the great obsession of humanity in general. Way back in Genesis, when the enemy tempts Adam and Eve to eat from the tree, telling them they will be like God, I think he's appealing to this human desire and lust for greatness. The grip of great goes all the way back to the beginning. But here's what's so dangerous about it. This great obsession, I believe, is a great deception. The great obsession is a great deception because greatness, attaining the things that we are really after, doesn't deliver what it promises for very long. Maybe you have gotten the very thing that you've wanted so badly and you found that it left you emptier than you were before. Or maybe you followed some of the stories of the lives of, the, of people that are considered famous or well-followed, uh, and very few of them who would appear to have great lives are genuinely content, joy-filled, or well-rested. In fact, it seems like those who are most known by others actually lead the most lonely and tragic lives of anyone. Well, after uh, having the chance to lead uh, the Boston Bruins Chapel for the last three years or so, probably the thing that I have learned the most from uh, these interactions was that becoming a professional athlete, becoming really great at a sport or something you really love, does not mean that you are going to be any happier than any other human or person on the planet. I love these guys, but none of them are really happier than any of us. Yes, they have climb the highest level in their sport and achieve the best things that they possibly can. Yes, maybe they need to get a Stanley Cup again here soon, but uh, that's beside the point. Yes, they make a lot of money. Yes, they have a lot of fame and are well-known and heavily followed online. But what comes with all this greatness is a lot of criticism, a ton of vulnerability. One of the things that a lot of athletes I've learned struggle with is this feeling of expendability. That even if I perform well during one season, I'm in jeopardy of an injury the next, and I could be forgotten about. No matter how much I sacrifice for my team, my family, or my family goes through, nothing really matters that much to an organization except the bottom line, and it's not just winning, it's about money. And so at the end of the day, no matter how much a player sacrifices, it's about business, and they can be really expendable. So if you think that just reaching some professional level of whatever you really are after is going to help you graduate into this state of like impermeable contentment, you're wrong. To help address this, we had a really powerful chapel session where I shared this principle from Dallas Willard that he talks about uh, concerning achievement. And he says this, that our accomplishments or our achievements are like manna, manna in the wilderness. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, when the Israelites were trying to make their way to the promised land after leaving Egypt, the Lord would feed them by sending manna from the heaven and it would appear on the ground like dew. And the people were allowed to collect as much as they wanted for a single day. But if they tried to hold on to it for more than a day, that manna would rot and stink. And in the same way, 
Willard's trying to say that our accomplishments are kind of like that manna. Yeah, they're going to satisfy us for a temporary time. But if you are basing your whole life and contentment on these things, you're going to be really, really disappointed because pretty soon that feeling of excitement and satisfaction and achievement, it's going to rot away and you're going to be left feeling as empty as ever. So the key then for us is if we want to break this grip of great, we have to be pursuing something that is greater than just being great. And gratefully, no pun intended, gratefully, Jesus clues us in to what that might be. Let's pick up the text here again in verse 11 of chapter 23. Jesus says this, the greatest among you will be your servant. Let me read that again. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. So what, according to Jesus, is greater than being great? Serving. He's offering a radically countercultural, counter-narrative to the story that the culture tells us about how to be satisfied, how to be content. And it's not by being the greatest, not by trying to reach the highest level. He's saying, the greatest among you are those who serve, those who disadvantage themselves so that other people might be lifted up, those who do the things that really need to be done so people can flourish, those who clean up the messes that others make. That's what greatness is all about. I love the way that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. captures this idea in his famous statement where he says, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. And I think he's totally right on that. So we need to try and reorient our lives around what matters most to God. And that is serving, that is giving of our lives. But what's tough about this text is that trying to become the least or the last or the servant, it just doesn't feel right at all in our, in our insides, in our system. Because we are living in a world where that is not what we're told to do. We're, that, those kind of behaviors are looked down upon. And I think because Jesus' teaching feels like it's so off, we really don't give it a genuine shot. I'd be willing to bet that Jesus' teaching on greatness here is the most untried of his teachings in highly affluent, upwardly mobile societies like ours. This is probably the reason that our lives can feel so empty at times. This is probably the reason why so many of our culture are hurting so badly because we're running after something that can't deliver what it promises. But Jesus invites us to a different way. He is giving us a greater invitation and that greater invitation is to serve. So how can we break this grip of greatness on our lives then? By trusting that God's vision of greatness is greater than the world's. We've got to trust deep down and trust with our lives and our behaviors that God's vision of what it means to be great, it is far greater than ours or the world's because only his vision is what lasts. Let me try and contrast it a little bit here, the world's vision of greatness with God's to help us get a clearer picture of what I'm talking about. The world would say that greatness is all about success. That as we said, God's vision of greatness is all about service. Now, greatness like success and service do not have to be polar opposites. They don't have to be uh, antithetical to one another. 
But oftentimes, the motivation behind trying to be successful and the motivation behind serving, they are antithetical to one another. They do compete negatively with one another because at the heart of serving, as we said, it's about lifting other people up. Another thing here that we could talk about uh, is the vision that the world has is, is trying to be noticed by others. That's what we see as being great, trying to get as much notice or attention from others as you possibly can. But here, God's vision of greatness is about being known by him. Great people don't have to seek human approval or applause because they know that they are loved by the only one whose opinion ultimately matters and is everlasting. The world defines greatness through the feelings of comfort and pleasure and security and finding these things. But God contrasts that. His vision of greatness is about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, risking our lives in obedience to Christ. And then lastly, the world says the vision of greatness is about making a name for yourself. But God says real greatness is about making Jesus' name famous. So if we want to break the grip of great on our lives, we have to begin by believing and trusting that God's vision of greatness is greater than the world's. And a lot of us might want to go about that just through willpower, saying, yes, you know what? I know this to be true, so I'm going to try as hard as I can to serve and beat this grip of great. And you might make some progress on that for a little while, but I'm willing to bet that you might find yourself gripped again by this need to be great, this need to be noticed And so instead of trying to be the kind of person who can trust God's vision of greatness is greater than the world's, we need to train ourselves to become the kind of people who can easily and routinely act in a trusting way, believing this is true. So I want to share three brief practices as we wrap up for how we can break the grip of great on our lives. The first is surrender. We have to be willing to let go of what we have been holding on to so tightly. Uh, to illustrate, I want to share kind of a bizarre illustration. I've heard some other preachers use it, so maybe you've seen this before. But how many of you have ever heard about how one can go about capturing a monkey? Anybody heard about this before? A couple people. Well, the way that you would try and capture a monkey, and the reason people would do this in some other agrarian societies uh, in more developing parts of the world you know, throughout the last centuries is because monkeys can sometimes be a nuisance to, to, uh, to people who are farming, and they can sometimes be a nuisance to people who are doing anything, but uh, that's a different point. But tragically, sometimes people are... It's too much monkey business. All right, I'm going to just drop it there. But if you want to catch, catch a monkey, you have to trap it. And the way that you trap it is by kind of cutting a hole into like an anthill or the ground or putting a jar uh, where the hole is just big enough for the monkey's hand to fit through the opening like this. And what you put on the other side, if you can't quite tell what these are, these are like my favorite snack, just FYI. Peach rings, any peach rings fans in here? So you'd put something sweet or you'd put something kind of like uh, appealing for a monkey to want to eat. And so when they stick their hand in to try and get this sweet thing, whatever they want, they can get their hand in. Oh, look at all those peach rings. Wow. And then when they make a fist trying to get as much out of the hole as they can, what happens? 
their hand gets stuck, right? They can't pull it out. So sometimes it'll be in the ground just like this. And so a monkey will be thrashing around trying to get their hand out of the ground just like this. All they got to do to get out of this situation is just let go of what they're holding on to, but they don't. They keep going like this. They're trying to get themselves out of the ground. And then the person who's trying to capture the monkey just can easily walk up to them without even any struggling, tie a rope around the monkey, and they capture the monkey and the monkey doesn't let go of what it's holding on to until it's too late, until they're captured. And I think in a similar way, many of us are holding on to this idea that we need to become great in some way. And it is squeezing the life out of us. It is trapping us. And all we have to do is let go, and yet we don't want to. I think my hand actually might be stuck. <laughs> Let's see. <clears throat> there we go. That would have made uh, shaking hands after the service really awkward. Hey, you know. <laughs> but I wonder what it is that you are holding on to. What, how does the grip of great have you? And what do you need just to let go of so that you can be free? Friends, unclench your fist. God doesn't expect you to have to do great things. Letting go gives a better grip on what matters most. So that's the first practice, surrender. And that's a continual thing because that grip of great is going to call our name all the time. There will be peach rings that we are going to pursue all the time and we have to just let go, let go, let go. Second practice is just simply to, to take up serving. Maybe it's to serve in a way you never have before, perhaps here at the church or in your local community. Find a need and try and meet it. You don't have to do something that's gonna make you feel like you're utilizing all of your gifts. No, just do what needs to be done. Do something that you're really not gonna have a lot of attention drawn to you. Perhaps you don't need to do something new. You just need to have a servant attitude in what you're already doing. Maybe at work, instead of just trying to be all about your own advancement, think about how you can lift other people up. You can help them flourish. Perhaps at home, you can take more of a serving posture with those that you live with. Instead of expecting them to do everything for you, try and take up a good attitude of saying, now I want to help make life as good as possible for them because that's where real life and joy is found. That's what Jesus teaches. So first, surrender. Second, serve. And then lastly, practice the discipline of secrecy. That's a really important spiritual practice. It doesn't get talked about very often, but here's what it is. Secrecy is about abstaining from causing our good deeds or qualities or connections to be known by others. Let me say that again. Secrecy is about abstaining from causing our good deeds or qualities or connections or experiences to be known by other people. By intentionally abstaining from speaking and posting about the things that we get excited about, we can help tame our hunger for fame or validation or getting attention from other people. So one way to practice secrecy is just to simply not post something that you are really excited about posting and just try and enjoy it with you and God or with those that you experienced uh, this image with or this event with. And as you do that, 
It might feel kind of painful at first, but you might, that pain might be the breaking that the grip of great has on you. And what will happen as you do this? You'll just start trusting God with your own brand. You'll trust God to be in charge of your public relations department. And that's gonna lead to much more joy and much more satisfaction and far less pressure. So try the practice of secrecy. Secrecy, surrender, and service. Which of these do you think you need to take up a little bit more in your life? What's one practice you can begin even now to start to break the grip of great on your life? But as we close, as much as these practices are gonna help us move toward breaking the grip of great on our lives, ultimately, we have to trust that Jesus is gonna enable us to do this by his grace. Jesus, through his spirit's power, can help us learn to genuinely trust that God's vision of greatness is far greater than the world's. And Jesus has shown us how this is true, not only through his teaching, but he's shown us how this is true through his very own life. The scriptures tell us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the freedom of many. And that freedom is not just what we can experience after we die, but Jesus desires for us to, desire, to experience that kind of freedom here and now, wherever we are, no matter what we are going through. And that freedom is found as we trust him and partner with his spirit to help break the hold that greatness has on us. So my brothers and sisters, let's let go of this grip of great and make our lives about chasing after the only one who is truly great. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. And as just a brief prayer exercise right now, I invite you just to clench your fist. Let this represent whatever vision of your life that you have been holding on to, whatever dream or goal that might not be bad in and of itself, but it might not be what God would have for you, whatever that vision of greatness looks like for you. And now I invite you, as the Spirit works in your life, and He is here, He is working, Start to slowly unclench the grip of your fist. Let your fingers just loosen and open up. And imagine yourself feeling the freedom that's found as Jesus unburdens you with this need to be great. Imagine him doing this right now and helping you. If it's hard to let go of this, imagine Jesus comforting hands, just helping very gradually, very gently to pull your fingers back so you can let go. And now, open-handed, imagine all that Jesus is calling you to, all that he wants you to take hold of, life with him, service in his kingdom. And so let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we ask by your power to help us live for what is greater than being great or noticed or recognized. Empower us to live a life of service for you and for your kingdom, a life of love for you and others and the world, and even a life of love so that we might love ourselves correctly 
not putting such heavy weights and burdens and pressure upon ourselves. May we be free because where you are, Jesus, we can be set free and we know you are here. So free us today for your glory. We pray this all in Christ's name and everyone said together, amen.